0: So this morning, church, as it is the week after Christmas where we celebrated and, and talked a lot about Jesus' first coming, so this week we're going to now talk about Jesus' second coming because the truth is Jesus came 2,000 years ago as the Savior to, to redeem the world in fulfillment of many Old Testament promises, but one day he is going to come back here again to our earth as, as he himself promised and he made crystal clear and then finally all will be made good and beautiful and right as it should be. <laughs> and, and, so, and so that's what we're going to be talking about for some time together this morning, the, the coming back of Jesus. And to do so, there's many Bible passages we could have gone to, especially some amazing ones, for example, in the book of Revelation, which more so give a picture of what Jesus' second coming will be like. But for us this morning, I wanted to choose a passage that more so emphasizes how we, how how you and I as Christians, are to be people who genuinely look forward to Jesus' second coming. Especially as we turn a new leaf to start a new year and think about what sort of people we want to be in 2024. 2024. And I think this passage here in 1 Thessalonians is helpful to get at a lot of that because as for where we are here in 1 Thessalonians, so so this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Thessalonica. And in fact, just so you know, many people think that this might be the first Bible letter that Paul ever wrote. And we're in chapter 1 here, so it's still in the opening of this letter, and to see part of how Paul opens here, actually just look down at your Bibles again at verses 6 through 8. This is part of the scripture reading, but just get a sense of what's being talked about here to begin. So for us, to begin here, look down at 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8. And you, the Thessalonian church, became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. And so we won't cover those verses in much detail this morning, but hearing that, you hopefully get the point. Because in short, the Bible is talking about how these Thessalonian Christians... They received the word, the gospel about Jesus, with belief and joy, even in the midst of affliction and suffering. But that's not it, because then, in those verses 7 and 8, Paul is clear that they, quote, became an example to a whole bunch of other Christians in the surrounding area as well. And how? Well, because, and this is really cool, what then happened, as mentioned in verse 8, is that because of the Thessalonians' faith, Quote, For not only has the word of the Lord, meaning the good news about Jesus, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. You see that? Meaning in history, these Thessalonians, who were just believers in Jesus, just like you and me, they apparently had such an exemplary faith, a a genuine special trust in the Lord because of the good news of Jesus, that not only did the gospel itself spread because of them, but then other Christians heard about their specific faith and were encouraged by it. Because that's what Paul writes. And hearing that, especially, again, as we're transitioning into a new year and we probably have new goals and resolutions and such, hearing that about these Thessalonians, I hope that stirs in us right, a desire to be like that. Because think about it. This is is amazing that we're hearing an apostle here in, in his writing, eternalized in God's word, so honor these believers in this church because of their faith. To so uphold them as an example that God has used for the sake of the gospel around them. And so again, I hope we read that in verses 6 through 8 and want to be like that. Especially in the year to come. Which brings us though to the question of, okay, so that's great, but, but what was their exemplary faith that so spread? Because if we want to be like these Thessalonians, we need to know what were the distinguishing marks of their faith that made it such an example, that something that others heard about and and wanted to be like them. And in basic church, that's what we're going to be talking about together this morning. And as we'll see, as for a brief outline of our time now, as we'll see, the special marks of the Thessalonians' faith are then explained in verses 9 and 10. And when we look at what's said there about their faith, three marks are mentioned, three main marks. And and to be clear, these are not the only three marks that the Bible could talk about concerning an exemplary faith, meaning they're not the only things that we might want to strive for. But in God's providence, these are the things that Paul writes about here. And these are three marks that if we want to begin our new year in in a new way, individually and as a church, it'd be great for us to strive for these things. Especially as we want God to use us like he used this church. And so again, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. What made the Thessalonians' faith so exemplary? Well, three marks, which we're going to cover in our three sections. And just so you know, the third and last will obviously be about Jesus' second coming. But all that said, let's just dive in then and and look at the first mark together. And this is actually just in the first half of verse 9. The first half of verse 9. And to be honest, out of the three of these, just so you know, this mark is the one that at first may seem like the least big deal, both back then and for us today. But when we think further about what's truly being talked about, it's actually quite significant, both for them. And for us. And you'll see what I mean. But for now, just look at the first half only of verse 9. So remember, verses 7 and 8, they had an exemplary faith, which leads to this in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And so we're stop there. And now hearing that, you can see, as for the first thing that, that Paul mentions about why their faith has spread, or, or better yet, think of it this way, Paul here is talking about what others were saying about the Thessalonians' faith. And what's mentioned? Well, it's that how others were talking about how concerning us, meaning concerning the Apostle Paul and his companions, people were talking about the kind of reception that the Thessalonians gave them. How they received them and welcomed them. It's that simple. And now on that, though, there's two layers to that exemplary mark about their faith. Two layers, which both do apply to us. And the first layer is a little more surface level, although it's still important. But the second is the deeper and more crucial thing here. So two layers, and just get these with me. So so the first layer, is in here what we see is their example of the love that they showed, right? The love. And we see that, I think, in how Paul talks about just the kind of reception they received. Because what was the exemplary faith of the Thessalonians? Well, one thing about it was that it just led them to be loving and welcoming people towards Paul and others. And and that makes sense. And in fact, that connection of faith and love is very common in the New Testament, right? And and it's, of course, something that should be part of our Christian lives. And you can even see that connection elsewhere in the opening of this letter. In verse 3, Paul just recently wrote, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love. Right, so you can sense the point, when we really trust Jesus, it empowers us to be people who labor in love toward other people. Right, and so that's the, that's the first layer here for them and for us. Our, our faith is exemplary when it allows us, it frees us to really love and welcome others. That was being talked about the Thessalonians. And of course, that should be true of us, right? As Jesus himself said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so that's the the first layer here. But that's not all or mainly, I think, what's being talked about here. Because yes, these Thessalonians were, were loving and welcoming towards Paul and his companions. But to really feel why that's so crucial and mentionable... Still today, but especially back then, we have to, we have to put ourselves back in their shoes. Because, because what we do all know from early Christian documents, especially in the New Testament, is that early on, after Jesus died and rose, there were a lot of false ideas and, and false teachings forming about Jesus and his ways. For example, Paul himself, in the letter to Corinthians, he talks about some people who showed up and started calling themselves super-apostles. Or in Acts and Galatians, Paul and the other apostles, they talk about how people were making it that you had to follow the Old Testament law at least a certain amount to be a Christian, the Judaizers. Or, for example, in 2 Peter, Peter really is serious about false teachers. Or finally, just remember, it was Jesus himself who taught us that wolves in sheep's clothing would come and declare false things in his name. And so all over the New Testament, right, we have this idea that just because someone was using the name of Jesus... It did not mean that they actually knew Jesus. So we're teaching the true word of the Lord, the true message of Jesus. Which means the question then becomes, it became back then and it still is today. Well, how is it then that you know that what you're accepting as truth about Jesus is actually true? And back then, and the answer still is today, that, well, you listened to Jesus' sent ones. His apostles, meaning Jesus' actual authoritative apostles. The word apostle in Greek is just the word for sent one. And all that said, knowing that then, you can see that's then why this reception of Paul and his companions is mainly talked about here in verse 9. Because even more than just general love... More deeper, the, this Thessalonians example of their faith here was an example because in such a world of competing ideas and views where again, people were using the name of Jesus and saying that you need to do some works to be saved or, or promising ease and prosperity. Where did the Thessalonians turn for their actual truth about Jesus? To Jesus' apostles. They welcomed them. That's, that's really the point. And for you and me, that's actually where this, this first mark most deeply applies if you're tracking. Because still today, you and I and all people who consider themselves Christians, we really need to think about the same question. The, the question of how do we know that, that what we're listening to and believing about Jesus and the gospel is actually true? How, how do we know it's not just my personal opinion or, or your personal opinion or that person on YouTube's personal opinion? Or how do we know this is true teaching from God versus what Jesus warned us about in false teaching? And well, the answer is it is not merely or mainly the teacher's intentions, right? Nor is it just that it happens to sound good to us. Instead, that's that's where this book comes in. Because you might have heard me say before here at ECC, we believe this book, not just because Jesus believed it, although he did amazingly, and that particularly applies to the Old Testament, but then also it's because in history it was Jesus himself who didn't write a book. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, he commissioned his sent ones, his his apostles, to go and teach and write in his name with his authority, like the Old Testament prophets. And that's why from the very beginning of church history, thousands of years ago, The thing that confirmed that something should be in this book was its apostolicity. It's being connected to one of those apostles. Because this New Testament is the apostolic teaching, if you will, meaning it is Jesus' teaching through his apostles written for us. And therefore, just to be crystal clear on this, that then means for you and me that this faith, this first mark of the Thessalonian Christians can be true of you and me just as much as well. Well, and how? Well, in history, they actually met and received Paul and the apostles. But what about us? Well, church, we meet and receive these same apostles by making what they said in the New Testament our top priority. We we welcome them when we make not what we just want to be true, nor just ideas that we think sound good, but what they said clearly in the Bible, our authority and guiding principle, right, in our church and in our lives. That's when we're following the Thessalonians' footsteps here, having an exemplary faith, embracing the word of God. And so let's just aim to be more like that in 2024. When you and I are are looking for truth, especially truth about Jesus, which we're doing more frequently than we realize, let's be people who just go to and embrace God's word, which maybe is why for some of us in here it would be a really good thing to do the Bible reading plan because that is such an easy way to just continually receive God's word. And again, we'll actually be talking about that more next week as well. But anyway, so that's the first exemplary mark about the Thessalonians' faith listed here. Which now moving on brings us to the second. And this is found in the rest of verse 9. And So looking down again, let's just read all of verse 9. So this it's the same sentence. So they had an exemplary faith because all of verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. To serve the living and true God. So there you can obviously see the second mark of their exemplary faith. And it's how people were talking about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And there's obviously two halves to that statement there, right? Two halves. And the first is how they turned to God from idols. They turned to God from idols. And that's simple to understand. But church, that's something that first happens at our conversion, of course. Like it did for them when we repent and and we turn to Jesus for the first time. And quickly, I just want to say for some of you in here in this room, maybe you personally haven't done that. Maybe you haven't turned from your sin and embraced Jesus for the first time accepting the gospel. But for us as Christians here, here, here's maybe the more applicable part. And here's why I think this is listed as such an exemplary thing for them. And it's that that turning to God from idols is also something that is to continually happen in our lives. It's something we must continue to do because of our faith. Right? Because we trust God in the gospel. And, and that's mainly what was probably so exemplary and talked about concerning the Thessalonians' faith. Because we need to remember, right? Back then, idols were a constant threat. And just so you know, interestingly, the city of Thessalonica itself was, and it still is today, only about 50 miles away from it. And it looked up at the famous Mount Olympus, which so many of the so-called gods were said to dwell. And so idols were really important in this city. And not only that, but they were just pervasive. They weren't a threat just because people happened to worship these idols. Instead, idols were just kind of a part of life. Right? They were involved in many aspects of daily living and society. And so for for these Thessalonians, their faith, including them being in a situation like that, and them turning away from those idols to God continually, them not giving in to those pervasive idols in the world, that, that was a big deal. It was noticeable. Right? For you and me, that can be true of us as well. And that's why church, let's think about it. It's not that, yes, we are now tempted to bow down and actually make sacrifices to idols anymore. That's true. But what you and I are tempted to do is we are tempted to take still so many of the things of the world, right? things that the world just offers us, our, our, our daily gods, if you will, and we can make them things that we go and rely on, that we spend so much time on, that we put our affections upon, especially things that we all live in the shadow of all the time like they did with Mount Olympus. And now on that, let's be honest though, even from the biblical perspective, this, this trying to navigate idolatry and, and yet not avoiding the world altogether and enjoying God's world is a line we need to walk. Because I just want to make this clear, from the Bible's perspective, in fact Paul says this elsewhere in 1 Timothy 4, God does create everything good that his people can enjoy. And so, our call here to avoid idolatry and to turn from God, turn to idols, turn to God from idols isn't a call. I just want to be clear to totally forsake the world and act like you can't enjoy anything in the world. That's not true. But, brothers and sisters, it is a call to continually be people who who watch where we're spending our time, where we're placing our affections, our energies. To not put our trust and our ultimate joy in such worldly things, right? Whether it be health or careers or wealth or sex or sports or stuff or entertainment or anything like that, as really all the idols back then, just so you know, just represented all of those things anyway. Instead, we're to keep God as our God. He's the one who's central over all things. Or to say another way, we are to be people who continually, in our daily lives, we decide to turn to God, to Jesus so that we and others may see that God is much more important and trustworthy and satisfying and beautiful anyway than anything the world offers. That's an exemplary faith. But that's not even all that's here in verse 9, because it's the second half here. Now notice, they didn't just turn to God from idols, but then importantly, Paul adds that it was being talked about how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to serve God. And now you can probably sense the fuller picture for them and for us because it's, it's one thing, think of this, it's one thing to be known as people who are really against idols, against things in the world. But it's another thing to be positively known as those who serve God. And and that's what was happening with these Thessalonians. They were known as not giving to the idols, yes, but also they were known as those who really did serve God, that they saw that as their purpose. And not even just God, but I love that Paul adds here, to serve the living and true God. Meaning finally on this point about idolatry, what's also so sad about serving idols, church, is that they aren't real or alive. The ancient Roman deities that the Thessalonians were tempted to worship, like Apollo or Zeus from Mount Olympus, they weren't real. And, and for us today, we might not use the term, understand real or not real, when referring to our idols, but the same application holds when we realize that our idols don't work. They they don't deliver what they promise. The idols of wealth or sex or stuff or sports or the great health or perfect family or nonstop entertainment or whatever. They aren't alive. They aren't real. They can't fulfill the time and energy and basically worship that we can place on them. And so again, in comparison to all of those, who did the Thessalonians serve? Who, Who do we get to serve? the living and true God. And so that's our second section, the second mark this morning to see this exemplary faith. And in some, this all in one sense sounds like such basic Christianity that they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But again, when you and I think about what that might have really looked like, Right, in their culture, in their day-to-day lives, and, and how it must have been so clear that they were, yes, not worshiping idols, but then also that they were positively people who had a different purpose for their lives. They served the living God. We start to see how, how world-changing, or at least city-changing, than regional changing that would have been. Right, they didn't serve idols. They so served God and others took note. And one last time, brothers and sisters, that can be more and more Us as well. In 2024 and beyond, let's be people who navigate enjoying God's world, but never worshiping and serving the the culture's idols before us. And then above all, let's instead realize that we do have the privilege, the purpose of serving the living and true God. That's why we're here, to love and follow our God, to do what he says, and to let him use us as he spreads his love and his gospel through us to whoever he places around us. All right, so that's the second mark here, which all finally now brings us to our third and last mark mentioned in this passage about their faith. And, and this is the main reason that we're even looking at this passage this morning. And So now, let's just look down at all of verses 9 and 10 for context. And you probably know what's to come here in verse 10, but as you hear this, just think about why this mark would be mentioned as such an example of an exemplary faith. So look down finally for this morning, 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, out of the three marks of the Thessalonians' faith here in this passage, it's probably this one that sure makes sense to us, but let's be honest, it's probably this one that we would think probably wouldn't be that impressive or noticeable. But both to the world or to other Christian believers. Because think about it, in a world that is lacking love or or a world that has false teaching, it of course is noticeable to really welcome and love others or to stand up for the apostolic truth. Or then second, it of course is noticeable to really turn away from idols and to show that you're worshiping the only living God. And and amen. But what about being known as people who are waiting? (laughs) Waiting. Waiting. I mean, I hope you feel the force of that. Paul doesn't say that they were people who were known to help build the kingdom or even that they were people who were bringing Jesus back quicker by spreading the gospel so well. We sometimes talk like that, but that's not what the Bible says here. Rather, the exemplary, noteworthy thing about their faith here is that it is a waiting faith. Waiting, which seems about as Passive and non-active as it gets. <laughs> and, so, and so the question is, well, what does that mean? And what does that look like in your and my lives? And there's a lot of answers we could give to that from the whole Bible, but I'm trying to just see what's here, what God inspired Paul to write in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. I think there's two aspects to this waiting on Jesus here, two aspects, a, a gospel aspect and a, and a hopeful aspect, a gospel aspect and a hopeful aspect. And these would be ways of describing our waiting on Jesus as well. And so, and so what do I mean by that? Well, first, as for the gospel aspect of our waiting, Here what we're talking about is how our waiting on Jesus to come back is obviously so based on the truth of the gospel. right? The gospel. It's based on how Jesus' salvation that he accomplished for us and that he will accomplish for us is true. The gospel is real. And we see that clearly talked about here in verse 10 and how Paul decides to write about Jesus, quote, whom he, God, raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that's significant because think about it. Apparently that means that the waiting of the Thessalonians that was such an example was a waiting where they were clearly frequently focused on the gospel. They were. Meaning they knew that Jesus in history came, died, and rose only about 20 years before this was written. And they knew that he was going to come back. And they knew that when he did, because of the cross, they were not going to face God's right wrath for their sins that they deserved. But instead, they'd be okay, delivered, secure, all because of Jesus. Right? And so that's the gospel aspect of this waiting. And brothers and sisters, for you and me, as, as we talk about waiting on Jesus, we, we first need to get that. Because consider this before you and I can think or especially feel rightly about the return of Jesus or especially be excited about Jesus coming back this gospel aspect must be true of us as well because let's be real if we're not secure in or passionate about the gospel about what Jesus did in history or about what he will do for us when he comes back in history if we don't love those gospel realities then there's little chance that we'll be happily waiting on Jesus to come back. Right? Instead, our lack of faith or insecurities or, or maybe even our fear of God and our sins will come in and they'll hinder our waiting. Right? We'll only focus on this life, this world. And, and perhaps for some of you in here right now, you realize that maybe you don't look that much forward to Christ's return, or you wouldn't be able to say that you're, you're waiting expectantly for Jesus. And the reason for that just simply might be a, a lack of really thinking about and focusing on the gospel, the good news that God has come for us, the fact that he's coming back for us, and when he does so, everything's gonna be so much better, and that in Jesus, you are really secure now and forever. And so again, that's, First and foremost, our waiting on Jesus. It's the gospel aspect here. In order to really wait on Christ, we must be gospel people. But then, along with that, there's this hopeful aspect to our waiting here that's talked about. This hopeful aspect. And what what I mean by that, there's actually, I think, three things, quickly, in just this verse that show us what our Christian hoping on Jesus is. Three things. And to be clear, just, just so you know, when the Bible or we talk about hope, Or being hopeful we don't mean something that we're unsure will happen like saying I hope my sports team wins today rather Christian hope the Bible word is a solid expectation of something true that will happen in the future and so and so what's our hopeful waiting well again just in this one verse there are three quick things that point us to our Christian hopeful waiting and number one is actually just interestingly seen in that word wait that Paul decides to use wait. Because it is fascinating that he he decides to write wait, isn't it? Because he could have said a lot of things about our posture towards Jesus and, and his coming back. And so why wait? And well, I think most likely it's because if you know your Old Testaments at all, you might know that it was a common thing in the Old Testament to talk about waiting on the Lord. Right? And so now who is the Lord? Well, the Lord, amazingly, is Jesus. But more importantly, what does that then teach us about our posture toward Jesus? Well, if you know this, in the Old Testament, waiting on the Lord, in the Psalms, for example, then often in the Prophets, it was this idea that, man, things are really off. And I can't do much about it, but I'll wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait on God to come and act. And thinking about it, that then fits so well here. And that means that Paul may be using this idea of waiting on Jesus here. Because the idea is, yes, these Thessalonians are loving and trusting Jesus. And yes, they're really trying to serve the living God instead of all these idols. Amen. But also, they knew, and me and you should know, that in the end, things in this world will continue to be not right. And we will continually be longing for more. And honestly we can't ultimately do much about changing this world. We can't. But we wait on the Lord. We wait on our Lord Jesus to come back and he'll take care of everything. That's our hope. And so that's the first thing on our hopeful waiting here as Christians, which then second leads to number two in this verse. And this is now seen on focusing on the fact that Paul decides to say that we're not just waiting on Jesus, but specifically they and we are waiting on God's son. You notice that? His son to come back. Meaning Paul decides to bring the Trinity and the very family of God into this picture. And why does that matter? Well, because in basic, it's probably because if you know anything about the gospel, you probably know that one of the main things that comes up over and over in the New Testament is the truth that because of Jesus, the son of God, by faith in him, we all here become part of God's family, God's sons and daughters. That's one of the top gospel truths in the New Testament. And that said, I do think it's intentional here that we're told to wait on the Lord and hope, but specifically on the son to come back. Because we, we, we're, to, we're to hear that and know that, and he's our brother and so when he comes back, our full sonship is going to come to fruition as well. We are hopeful and expected and excited for God's son, our very brother Jesus, to come back here for us and to us. And so that's the first and second thing that Paul writes here, which finally leads to number three. And this is now finally seen in how Paul is clear that we're waiting for Jesus, God's son, to come, quote, from heaven, from heaven, from heaven. And again, that especially is so intentional. Because what's the ending of the whole Bible? Of, of, of all of world history to come? Well, it is that us, God's people, will be in heaven. We can talk like that. But specifically, it is because heaven is finally going to come here. hope you know that. To earth. That's what we're looking forward to. It's our glad expectation. Because throughout the Bible, heaven is where... God dwells. It's where everything is right and as it should be. But now, here, because of the fall on earth, things are messed up. And so, what's our hope? What are we as Christians excitedly expected, expectant about that's really going to happen in our world history? Well, to answer that, let's just summarize all of verse 10 together. What's our hope, our waiting on Jesus? Let's make this really applicable for 2024. Well, first, our waiting on Jesus in the next year to come must be based on the reality of the gospel. Let's remember, Jesus came here as we celebrated Christmas. He lived. He died. He rose three days later. He is coming back. And when he does so, we are secure now and forever. Let's believe it. But not only that, but then also until Jesus comes back, though, And he could today, tomorrow, this year, or literally thousands of years from now. We do not know. But until he does, we, his people, wait on him. Like Old Testament saints waited on the Lord. We're to wait specifically for God's son, our brothers coming back for us. And then finally, we're waiting on him to come from heaven. Which really does imply that man, when he comes, he is bringing heaven with him. And then God's will will be done on earth as it is always done in heaven. And finally, everything will be made good and beautiful and right again. So that's our passage this morning, church. And again, I hope you see it. That is a faith worth emulating. All right, an exemplary faith, according to God's word here, is a faith that embraces the authority of the Bible because Jesus' apostles speak here. It's a faith that turns consistently from the, the world's seductive idols to positively serving the living and true God, which is better for us anyways. And finally, it's a faith that does that expectantly waiting on Jesus to come back. Because when he does so, will be better than we can imagine. And so for you and me this morning and in this church, brothers and sisters, just remember those three marks. I encourage you because they are here in God's word for us. And then let's maybe genuinely be people who who pray about these things. Let's pray that individually we become more like this, that our church becomes more like this. And then finally, by God's grace and his spirit, individually and as a church, let's really strive to be more like these Thessalonian brothers and sisters of ours. People who embrace God's word, who, who turn from idols to God and are waiting on Jesus to come back. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.